few weeks ago, Kevin challenged us to tell our story, to give our testimony about how God has changed our lives. I could stand up here and tell you about how I came to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, but the greatest impact has been on how he has saved our marriage. My name is Jennifer Cox, and this is my husband, Harold. We've been married 11, almost 12 years. We have two children, Jesse, age 8, and Wesley, 6. But after only being married 10 years, I again found myself contemplating divorce. Harold and I were living in separate houses for a second time in our short marriage. Our children were a little older this time, and were beginning to feel the burden of living with parents who were unhappy together. For me, this was it. Too many times I had forgiven him and given in. Not this time. I was done arguing. I was done worrying. I was done feeling guilty. I was tired of seeing my children upset. This was the last time. I had prayed that God would save my marriage. Specifically, I prayed that God would fix my husband. I begged him to change Harold, to make him the man that I wanted him to be. I was hurt and scared and so angry. If Harold had stopped doing the things that started our fights, then our marriage would be fine. It was just that easy for me. If he changed, then everything would be better. I was past the point of reconciliation. In fact, I remember telling Kevin that the day he called to tell me that Harold had come to visit with him. Reluctantly, I agreed to meet with him too. But I was sure that there wasn't anything that Kevin could do to fix our marriage because even God hadn't been able to answer those prayers, or so I thought. You see, I had reached out to for help as well. So many people had told me, just walk away, it's too far gone, you'll be better off alone. So many people told me to give up. Kevin, however, explained to me that Harold was hurting and angry and scared too, but but he would do anything to fix us. That was the first time that I realized that I was as much to blame as Harold was. You see, in that moment, I stopped being the victim, and I became the perpetrator. I discovered that the man I thought was empty and cold and turned off to me was really dying inside every time I yelled at him or I ignored him. Kevin recommended that we talk to a counselor, too. We were blessed to find a counselor who was firmly rooted in his faith. With his help, I discovered that I needed as much help as I thought Harold needed. I began praying for God to make a difference in our lives, not just our marriage. God opened my eyes to my own flaws. I came to realize that I had been holding Harold accountable for things that had happened to me long before I even knew him. God gave me the grace to let go of my anger and resentment toward Harold. God's mercy allowed me to forgive myself for my past mistakes, and that freed my heart to truly love my husband the way God loves me, unconditionally. With the Lord's help, Harold continues to overcome the demons that were trying to control his life, too. Now, I'm not going to say that we lived happily ever after in some perfect fairy tale. We still argue, we still get angry, we still stumble, and we're still healing. It takes work. But we are closer now than we've ever been because we're closer to him than we've ever been before. We've made our faith a a priority in our marriage and our family, and we're all better for it. We would like to invite all the married or engaged couples to rethink marriage. 
Won't you please join us October the 18th and 19th as Professor Buckland challenges us to better our marriages during this seminar linked. You can sign up in the lobby today. Please invest in this part of your life, for without love, we are all bankrupt. Thank you. Share with a, a crowd like this your your problems and and that you've had these kinds of issues in your life. I appreciate Harold and Jennifer uh, doing that and how God praise the Lord for how God has worked in their lives and bringing them closer together. I was moved this morning to tears uh, as I looked at the list of couples that are signed up already for this marriage seminar, and on that list I saw the names Earl and Marvelyn Williams. They have been married for 61 years. And still they're seeing that this, this could be a good thing for them. Uh, Marvelyn, I said something to her in, uh, prior to the first service, and she said, yeah, uh, we're going to see if this guy can learn anything from this. Uh, we're going to see if an old dog can learn new tricks is what we're going to see. But I am so thankful to them for their willingness to uh, not shove this aside and say, you know, we've already got it. We've been together 61 years and there's nothing more for us to learn. Uh, so I want to challenge you as well, if you've not signed up yet, to do that even today. Two weeks ago, we looked at the text in Matthew 16 where Jesus, or where Peter made his great confession of who he believed Jesus to be. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In, in the text that we're looking at today, we're going to see four evidences that give support to Jesus being the Son of God. I, I want you to know that your faith in Jesus as the Son of God is not... A blind faith. It's not a shot in the dark. If someone asks you why you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you don't have to answer, well, I, I just do. You know, I've always believed that. My mom and dad taught me that. And the church that I went to, that's what they believed. And so that's what I believe. You don't have to have that kind of shallow answer as to why you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. There is evidence that you can back up your faith. And we're going to look at some of those evidences in today's text. Would you look with me at Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 28 and 29. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And I want to stop right there for just a moment and make a point. And the point is this. When we pray, good things happen. Okay, would you say that with me? When we pray, good things happen. And that certainly was true in the life of Jesus several times throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, as we see Jesus 
taking the time to pray, good things happened after that. In Mark chapter 1, it says that Jesus went out in the early morning while it was still dark, and he found a solitary place, and there he prayed. Shortly thereafter, it says that he went throughout Galilee and Uh, Throughout that that region, he's preaching and he's casting out demons. And Mark gives the account of him healing a man with leprosy. When Jesus prayed, good things happened. In Luke chapter 3, after Jesus was baptized, it says that he was standing there praying and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. Again, when Jesus prayed, good things happened happened. Luke chapter 5, verse 16, it says that often Jesus would slip away into the wilderness to pray. Immediately following that passage, it says that the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And then shortly thereafter, we see Jesus in that home and, and, and four fellows up on the roof. They tear a hole in the roof. They let their paralytic friend down before Jesus and Jesus heals that man of his paralysis. When Jesus Jesus prayed, good things happened. Matthew chapter 14, I saw this passage just this morning as I was reading the scripture. He was praying way into the hours of the night. And shortly thereafter, he was walking on the water. And then after that, he's, he's, the scripture says that there is a whole throng of people and a multitude of people that are gathered around him and they are simply touching the hem of his garment and they are being healed of their diseases. When Jesus prayed, good things happen. Luke chapter 6, he spends the entire night in prayer to God and shortly thereafter, he chooses the 12 disciples to come and follow him. And verse 18 of that chapter says that many were being healed of their diseases and demons were being cast out. Good things happened when Jesus prayed. I think that's still true today. For you and I, when we spend time in prayer to the Lord, we are going to see good things happen. Lost souls are saved. Broken marriages are restored. The sick are healed. You've been seeing the last three weeks, the little video clips that we've had of promoting the fall campaign, which is starting October 13th. I, too, want to encourage you to be here on October 13th. Don't miss that service. One of the good things that's going to happen that day, Tim Woodreen is going to give his testimony of what he has learned from the recent miracle that he has experienced as God's people were in fervent prayer for him. When God's people pray, good things happen. Our text today, Jesus was praying, and as he prayed, he was transfigured before his disciples. And that's one of the evidences that I want to mention to you today. The fact that Jesus is God's son is is supported by this transfiguration of Jesus. Keep in mind, there were three reliable witnesses to this event, Peter, James, and... And John, this was not hearsay for them. 
they, they saw the glory of Jesus with their own eyes. Most attorneys would be so happy, they would feel good about their case if they had three eyewitnesses whose testimonies all collaborated together. Now, someone might say, these guys were dreaming. You read on in this text, verse 32, it says that Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. But you keep reading there, Luke is very careful in this text to mention that now they were fully awake. He wanted to leave no room for skepticism here. This event really did happen. And if a person had a question in that day and age about whether it happened, they could go to Peter and James and John and they would get an eyewitness account. These fellows saw it with their own eyes. What does it mean that Jesus was transfigured before them? Well, let me read to you the three gospel accounts. Matthew and Luke and Mark, all three, give an account of the transfiguration. I want to see what these fellows have to say about it. And then we'll look at the Greek word itself. Luke's account, we've already read it. And this is what Luke says about the transfiguration. It says that the appearance of Jesus' face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. I'd like for you to let these words sink into your mind, the accounts of Luke, the accounts of Mark and Matthew, let it all sink into your mind. Mark's account is interesting. He says that Jesus was transfigured before them and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Not even Tide or Clorox could do this kind of a job. His clothes were whiter than white. Matthew's account of this story, chapter 17 of his gospel, he says it this way, that Jesus' face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as Light. I think you're getting the picture. I am imagining in this instance that when Peter and James and John looked and they saw Jesus transfigured before them, they had to shade their eyes with their hands because the brightness was just that bright. The word transfiguration, it comes from a Greek word that I think you will recognize. It's the word metamorpho. Now, it would, I think, be easy for all of us to figure out which English word comes from that, metamorphosis. It means a complete change of form, as as a caterpillar changes to a butterfly. And so for a few moments, Jesus was transfigured before his disciples. In other words, they were, they were able to get a glimpse of his heavenly glory. His earthly radiance dropped for just a few moments and his heavenly radiance took over. You remember when Moses went up into the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments and he spoke to God as a man speaks to man face to face, 
And when Moses came down from the mountain, his face had a radiant glow to it, says Exodus chapter 34, verse 35. It was glowing because he had been in the presence of God. The glory of God was shining on Moses' face to such an extent that the people of Israel insisted that Moses put a veil over his face so that they could see him. In this case, the heavenly glory of Jesus became visible to the disciples. And it was so bright. It was brilliant. It was awesome to such an extent that Peter wrote about it in Second Peter chapter 1. He refers to it as the majesty of Jesus. The word majesty means splendor, magnificence. I'm telling you, folks, this was a wow kind of moment. It was a special moment. And it's no wonder that the commentaries that I looked at, they were all in agreement. This one particular said this was the most significant event between the birth of Jesus and his passion. You you realize what he's saying there? Between the time that Jesus was born... And the time that Jesus went to the cross, there was no more significant event than this event, the transfiguration. Mark Moore agrees with that. He refers to this as the pinnacle of Jesus' earthly ministry. Think with me. There are two other times in the New Testament where the word metamorpho is used. In your own mind, can you think of those two times? I want to tell you where they're at. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, is the first instance where that word appears after the transfiguration. And and it says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. There it is. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. It's interesting to me that these other two instances where this metamorpho appears, it's not in reference to Jesus, but it's in reference to you and me. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Let me read to you the second time that it appears. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. On the screen is the New American Standard Bible. I want to read it to you from the message. So it'll, be, it'll read a little differently than what's on the screen. The message says it this way. And so we are transfigured much like the Messiah, our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. You know what I learned from those two passages of Scripture? That as we are transfigured, as we are transformed into the likeness of Jesus, that actually is a process. It isn't something that takes place overnight. Yes, Christ comes into our life and we are saved and we are put on the road of salvation, but this transformation, this change of life takes place over a period of time as we grow up in Him, as we mature. 
And so my question to you would be this. Are you being transformed into the likeness of Jesus? I hope that you are. We certainly need to be. We need to be looking more like the Savior than what we are looking like the world. The transfiguration of Jesus is evidence of his identity. He is and he was the Son of God. Let me give to you a second evidence for his identity, and that is the testimony of the saints. Let me read to you verses 30 and 31 of Luke chapter 9. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now you talk about a who's who list on the mountain. This this is it. Moses was there representing the Old Testament law. Elijah was there representing the prophets. And Jesus was there. No wonder the disciples were in awe. Did you see from the text what these two fellows were talking to Jesus about? What's it say? They were speaking of his what? Departure. Now, if you're reading from the New Living Translation, it says it this way, that they were speaking to Jesus about his exodus from this world. And I'm thinking, if anybody knew how to have an exodus, Moses and Elijah would be the two to talk to. Moses. He was a part of the great exodus out of Egypt. And then his own exodus from this world was quite unique. Do you remember about it? As he went up onto the mountain, Mount Pisgah, God allowed him the opportunity to get a view of the promised land. You remember, he wasn't going to be able to go into the promised land. But God allowed him to take a look at the promised land from the top of the mountain. And then the scripture says that Moses died. And there is something very unique about Moses that happened after that. And that is this. God buried him, the scripture says. It's the only time in scripture that we are told that God buried somebody. Moses knows about an exodus. And so does Elijah. Do you remember about Elijah's exodus from this world? He was swooped up by a chariot of fire and horses and taken out of this world. He's one of two men that didn't die. Him and Enoch are the only two who never faced death here on this earth. These fellows know about an exodus And they are there with Jesus to talk with him about his upcoming exodus. And I am sure they were a great encouragement to him. Let's not forget that Jesus was a human being. As well as being the son of God. The road of suffering was not going to be an easy road. He didn't like pain any more than what you and I like pain. Because he was a human. And he knew that lying ahead of him was a great amount of unbearable 
pain. And the devil was trying to put up a roadblock. The devil did not want Jesus to go through, the, through with the cross. He was trying to discourage Jesus not to go through with the cross. He was, in fact, using the disciples. The disciples were discouraging Jesus. They were saying, this shouldn't happen. Peter, in fact, had stood toe-to-toe with Jesus and said, this can't happen to you. They didn't understand the plan of God. And so, Jesus had no one to turn to, no one to confide in. And so what does God do for Jesus? God gives him two counselors. God sent him two trusted friends to talk to and to confide in. Do you remember the book of Job, how Job's friends came to counsel him amidst his trials? I mean, Job had lost everything. He had lost his children. He lost his possessions, his flocks and herds. He had lost his servants. Job needed somebody to come alongside of him and encourage him. But instead of that, his friends came to him and said, Job, we think you're the problem. You're the cause for all of these heartaches and tragedies. You talk about zero sympathy. When Job needed comfort from his friends, all he got was a finger pointed at him. When Job needed support, what he got was harsh judgment. And here we have Jesus in a very similar situation. His troubles are about to mount up in a big time way. And he knows that. And he was in need of an understanding friend. He was in need of someone to come alongside of him and give him encouragement and to give him counsel. The disciples could not fill that role. And so what does God do for him? God sends him two counselors who understand the eternal plan of God. And these counselors are able to give to Jesus the assurance and the comfort that he needs. Now that's not meaning that Jesus was weak. It simply means that Jesus needed some encouragement. He needed somebody to come alongside of him and God understood his need and God sent him two superstars, one named Moses and one named Elijah, and they talk with him about his departure to come. I can almost hear them say, as they put their hand upon his shoulder, they're saying, you can do this, Jesus. You know this is the plan of God. Go for it. As I was preparing this sermon, right there at that point, I was thinking that I would say too, that they would say to Jesus, you know, God will never forsake you at that moment. And yet God did. He had to. Because he was the epitome of sin. And so in their counsel, they were saying, go for it, Jesus. You can do this. This is the plan of God. They understood 
what his departure would be like and the difficulty of it. Their presence with Jesus is evidence of his identity. He was and is the Son of God. Now, before I move on from here, let me just make a couple of points of application. When you are in need, you know that God will always be there to help you with that need. He'll send someone to come alongside of you, to console you, to comfort you, to encourage you. He will not leave you stranded. That's what he did for Jesus. He brought Moses and Elijah alongside of Jesus. He'll bring someone alongside for you too. He'll bring his Holy Spirit to you, but he may bring someone alongside of you who is in the flesh, who will encourage you and comfort you and spur you on. But let me say this too. He may want to use you to be that helper to somebody else. Be open to God's leading. Be sensitive to other people's needs. If God brings to your mind someone who is hurting, someone who is going through the valley, someone who is going through a period of hardship in their life, he may want you to be the one to go alongside of that person and comfort them and console them. My challenge to you today is be a Moses to someone. Be an Elijah to someone. God brings that hurting person to your mind. That may be God saying, go help them. Encourage them. Stand alongside of them. Let me give to you a third point. The testimony of God gives evidence to Jesus' identity. Verse 35, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is the second time that God speaks from heaven about Jesus. The first time was at his, bad, at his baptism. There will be a third time that he speaks from heaven about Jesus. John chapter 12. And right here, the second time at the transfiguration, he comes right out with the truth. He says, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. You know what that means? That means hear him. Come to know him and understand him. To give heed to him. Obey him. All of that is wrapped up in this word listen. It's not just that we would hear him with our ears. But that we would hear him with our heart. And that we would obey him. That we would come to understand him. That we would come to know him and obey him. Even as I was studying this morning, preparing for this, a thought came to my mind. Two two different times, Jesus uses these kinds of words in his own speaking to his audience. This helping us understand this word listen, this this need to to understand him, to know him, to obey him. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It is important that we obey God. And for those who are standing at the judgment seat of Christ, and he sends them away to the the left, he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. 
Don't underestimate how important it is that we know him, that we understand him, that we obey him, that we listen to him. James said it this way, don't prove yourselves, prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Listen, we must hear him and obey him. Are we doing that? I mean, I can't answer that for you. You can't answer that for me. We have to answer that for ourselves and be honest about it. According to God's testimony, Jesus was and is his son, his chosen one. We need to listen to him. Let me give to you a fourth point, a piece of evidence that points to the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, and that is this, His miraculous power. And we have talked about this numerous times throughout this series on the life of Christ. Jesus, these miracles that He performs, they are evidences of who He is. No mere man could do these things. And in this particular instance, Jesus and His disciples, after the, the transfiguration, these four fellows, Jesus... James and John and Peter, they spend the night on top of the mountain, and the next morning they come down, and by the time they get to the base of the mountain, a crowd has gathered, and the disciples, the other nine of them, are right in the middle of this, and a father has cornered those nine disciples with his son, and he is saying to them, would you please cast the demon out of my son? And they've tried. And they have been unsuccessful. And they turn and they see Jesus and the other three disciples coming down from the mountain. The father leads the pack. He runs towards Jesus. And he says, would you please heal my son? Your disciples have tried and they can't do it. And then he tells Jesus what's going on. His only son is demon-possessed. And the demon at times will take control of the son and throw him into convulsions. He will foam at the mouth. He'll grit his teeth. Sometimes he will even be thrown into the fire, the scripture says, and then into the water. The father had tried everything he knew how to help his son, but it was out of his hands. He's tried the disciples, and now he turns to Jesus, and he says, If you can... Would you please help my son? If you can. That's what Jesus said. To him. That was his response to this, to this father who is in despair and desperate. If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Let those words sink into your mind for just a moment. All things are possible to him who believes. I love the father's response back to Jesus. He said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Haven't you been there before? (laughs) I think we all have. We do believe. 
We know Jesus can do miracles. The question is, we're just not sure whether he's got a miracle for us or not. And the Father just puts it so so much for us. He speaks for us. He says, I do believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And Jesus cast out the demon and gave the boy back to his father. And later, the disciples are gathered around Jesus. And they're, they're saying, Jesus, why couldn't we cast the demon out? You remember what Jesus said? He said, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. And that takes us right back to where we first started. When God's people pray, what? Good things happen. And so let us, let us pray. Let us become more prayerful, more attentive. To listen to Him more. He was and He is the Son of God. Will you listen to him? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we believe. Help our unbelief. Grow us in our faith. Help our ears to be more attentive to you. Help us to know you more intimately. Thank you, Jesus, for being God's son. We believe that you are. We believe that you're on the throne. We believe there is no equal to you. It's in your blessed name that we pray.